Before we begin, we would like to add a disclaimer that we are not licensed medical professionals and that this podcast should in no way be taken as medical advice. Our main goal is simply to educate and spread awareness of health information to the general public. Additionally, this episode will include discussion of topics that may be sensitive for some listeners, including death, physician-assisted suicide, and euthanasia. So please listen at your discretion. Thank you. Hey there, and welcome to the second episode of Morning Sign In, a new podcast by Morning Sign Out at UCLA. We're a student-run organization fighting to promote good health literacy in Los Angeles, but also across America and the world, and that starts with you. Every quarter, we have a dedicated team of writers and editors that write articles about developments in the areas of health and wellness, public health, and research to keep you updated about the best ways to stay healthy and how to take control of your health. The latest scientific and health updates are broken down into information that it's easy to understand and read. You can find their work and learn more about us on our website, www.mso.ucla.org. My name is Dhruv Kosla, by the way, and I'm one of MSO's editors-in-chief. We are joined today by two of our amazing members, Melody Zaki, one of our writers, and Sophia Luengo-Woods, one of our editors. They'll be helping me to break down a topic that many of you may have heard of recently, racial disparities in healthcare. Melody and Sophia, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm excited to dive into this issue with you guys. So in discussing this topic, racial disparities in healthcare, I think it's important to first break down a bit about what racial disparities in healthcare really means. And kind of the simplest definition would be differences in people's healthcare or health outcomes simply based on their race and not any other factors. Um, And I'd like to pursue kind of a format of going through somebody's life course uh, while we discuss this topic. And that's going from somebody being born through the middle of their life all the way to the end of their life. And in doing that, I'd like to start kind of with the beginning, childbirth. We'll turn to Melody first. Melody, childbirth, of course, starts the beginning of everyone's life course trajectory. Are racial disparities or how are racial disparities connected to childbirth in America? Okay, so today, black women are two to three times more likely to die from childbirth and other pregnancy-related complications as compared to white women. Um, And this has been talked about by the CDC and multiple other reliable sources. And so what they found is that the leading cause of maternal death are hemorrhage, pregnancy-induced hypertension, and embolism. And most of these things are preventable if doctors are listening and paying attention. And so this kind of highlights why this is a problem and why this is such a huge racial disparity. Black women are also more likely to not only experience problems in their pregnancy, but also to experience more traumatic birthing experiences. And again, this is a preventable disparity. Um, It seems that the main cause of death is not necessarily the pregnancy-related complications or the childbirth experiences, but rather the fact that black women are seen as undervalued. They're not monitored as closely as white women, and when they do present symptoms like pain or shortness of breath to their physicians, they're often dismissed. Okay, so it sounds like the major issue here is actually not the direct causes of what's leading to maternal death in black women, but kind of a dismissal or disregard for the concerns of black women in healthcare settings or in hospitals. So could you kind of explain why you think that is the case? Uh, And could you also kind of define what those leading causes of death are, uh, kind of in simple terms for our listeners? 
Okay, so I mentioned three main causes. Um, so I talked about hemorrhaging, I talked about hypertension, and I also talked about embolism. And you're right, those sound really complicated. Most of those just have to do with the blood and blood flow throughout the body. So hemorrhaging is like abnormal flow of blood. And so it can be external or internal. And internal is the one that we're usually more concerned about because it's not usually visible right away. It may just present as some abdominal pain um, and people aren't really paying attention to it. Another thing, hypertension, is just another fancy word for high blood pressure. And so, again, high blood pressure puts a lot of strain on the heart. We don't want that. And so, a lot of pregnant women suffer from hypertension, but if it gets to a certain point, then we need to talk about it and they need to discuss it with their doctors and it needs to be taken care of. Um, the last one was embolism. And so this is kind of like a blood clot that forms in the body. And so it kind of prevents blood from flowing and getting to all the organs and tissues and maintaining that blood flow throughout the body. All of these things are really dangerous, but the biggest issue is that women will go to the doctors complaining of like abdominal pain or shortness of breath or something that could be pointing to a bigger problem like these three things and then the doctor thinks they're just being dramatic or they have no reasoning behind their complaint um a lot of doctors also see black women as these strong entities that aren't supposed to be complaining like this um and so they'll often dismiss it and not look further in giving them the medications or the support that they need. Um, and so that's why even though these three things that I mentioned are super serious and need to be taken care of, it's more important that physicians are listening so that these things can be addressed. Got it. Well, first, thank you for defining those terms. And I agree, that sounds very concerning that um, the concerns of Black women are being disregarded in these um, settings and that there definitely needs to be more empathy and concern directed towards them um, by healthcare practitioners. I would like to ask kind of a different question. In general, we know that wealthier, more affluent people do tend to have better access to healthcare and are more healthy uh, as a result, which seems quite logical. Does the same logic hold true for pregnant black mothers or do we find cases in which that doesn't hold true? Okay, so that's a great question. A lot of people, when they're presented with this conversation or this topic, they kind of dismiss it as, oh, this is a problem for working class women. Um, and it's true, working class women don't have the same access to healthcare, and that definitely does play a role in the de development of these complications. Example, they're often farther away from hospitals, so it's more difficult for them to have regular checkups with doctor visits, um, and they may not have the health insurance to get all the prenatal vitamins or the support that they need. But this isn't solely an issue of low socioeconomic status versus high socioeconomic status. Success, affluence, and education don't protect black women from this gross inequality. Serena Williams and Beyonce both spoke up about this pregnancy complications that they suffered and both said that they could have died. Beyonce, for example, was forced to have an emergency C-section because her life and her baby's lives were in danger, and C-sections are major surgeries that take a major toll on the physical well-being of the mother and on the mother's mental health. Yet, black women are much more likely to have to undergo C-sections. Serena Williams also reported that she developed blood clots, or the pulmonary embolisms that we were talking about earlier in her lungs, after giving birth to her daughter via a C-section. As we can see, this isn't just an issue of status or wealth. It's a major issue of how black women are being treated by the healthcare system. 
Wow, okay, that is quite upsetting to hear. Um, Serena Williams is one of my favorite tennis players, and Beyonce, who doesn't love Beyonce and single ladies? But that is definitely quite upsetting. Uh, you mentioned this term cesarean section or C-section, um, and that's, you know, a different way of doing the birthing procedure versus what's called like a live birth. Do you have any statistics that kind of back this up in terms of the rates of which races in America are getting C-sections versus which are not? That's a really important distinction. So C-sections or cesarean um, sections are involve like almost cutting of the mother. And so it's a lot more traumatic to the mother and results in a much longer time of recovery for the mother versus vaginal births tend to be quote unquote more natural. And so they take up less recovery time. Of course, whether or not a mother chooses to have a C-section is totally up to her. The problem here isn't whether or not they're choosing it. It's the fact that they're almost being coerced into having C-sections over vaginal births. This one study done in 2020 found that overall black women made up a 35.4% of C-sections versus white women that only made up 31%. It sounds like a small difference, but given that the sample size included like almost 4 million births across the United States, it was a significant difference between black women and white women. It's also important to note other women of color in this conversation. So Asian women were 33.1%. That was right after black women. American Indian or Alaskan natives um, made up 28.1% and um, Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islanders made up 29.9%. Women of color more likely to have C-sections, not usually their choice a lot of them don't have a say um they're told to trust their doctors and then their doctors are not listening to them and um forcing them to do things that they don't necessarily want to do um resulting in more traumatic birthing experiences and a much longer recovery time and for especially working class women that's not always um okay because they can't necessarily get that much time off work and they have to go back to work and so it's a big problem um and it's important that we're talking about it wow okay thank you melody uh it i think we've definitely established that this is a major problem uh taking place in america and you know this is being reflected in scientific studies like you mentioned and through their data and i'm going to ask you a very weighty question i know we're just undergrad students not doctors or policymakers yet um, but do you have any, any ideas on how society as a whole could tackle the issues that you brought up in terms of different rates of maternal morbidity or C-sections uh, in terms of race in America? Yeah, so I'm definitely not super aware of everything that we can do. But from the things that I've been reading, as more women begin to speak up about their experiences and advocate for their bodies um, and their health, the disparities begin to decrease. And so having women like Beyonce and Serena Williams, huge public figures, speak up about their own experiences really encourages a lot of other women to start speaking up and advocating for themselves. Hospitals are also currently working to standardize care so that it's equitable to all women regardless of their demographics and then having doctors that learn to advocate for their patients and for maternal health will definitely help decrease these disparities. Many of these maternal mortality cases are preventable if doctors take the time to listen and follow up on recurring complaints and problems per standard protocol so that women have the freedom to make their own decisions about their bodies and about their pregnancies. It's also important to note that this is not just a problem in America. Lots of countries around the world are suffering from disparities when it comes to women and their health. And so it's important that in a country where we kind of put out this message of equality and of advocacy and rights, that we remember that it's not happening in this country and it's not happening in a lot of other ones. 
Great. Thank you so much for sharing those insights, Melody. I really appreciate it. And I absolutely agree with you in terms of what you mentioned about advocacy uh, and equality. I think those are things that we should continue to talk about. And hopefully we can slowly but steadily solve this problem of maternal morbidity based on race. So now that we've heard from Melody about how race can impact someone's life course from the very beginning and steps that we can take to fix this, I'm curious to see if racial disparities exist in the middle of someone's life in the next part of their life course. Sophia, are there any concrete situations in which this is happening that you know of? Absolutely, and there really are too many to count, but one that I haven't heard discussed very often are the racial disparities when it comes to CPR. So as many of you guys probably know, CPR, which is short for cardiopulmonary resuscitation, is an emergency procedure that you can do when someone's going through cardiac arrest to keep oxygen circulating through their blood until a more permanent solution can arrive. So in theory, Anyone with a really basic level of training can use CPR to save a life, but what we're realistically seeing are certain racial populations receiving CPR much less often than others. Okay, so I noticed at the end of your answer you mentioned certain racial populations are receiving CPR less often than others. Is this kind of following the same pattern that Melody mentioned in terms of maternal morbidity? Uh, In her case, she was talking about Black American women um, receiving C-sections more often and having a higher mortality rate from childbirth. So are we seeing a kind of a similar thing in terms of CPR in which Black Americans are receiving CPR less often? Yeah, it absolutely mirrors what you guys were talking about earlier. Uh, Black people have been found to have a much lower likelihood of receiving bystander CPR, and the same goes for Latino people as well. And just a quick clarification, uh, the term bystander CPR, is that referring to people who are like bystanders at a scene of a medical emergency? Yes, exactly. Kind of as opposed to CPR done by EMTs who come with the ambulance to the scene specifically to help that person. Hmm. So have there been any studies or data collection that are supporting this trend of CPR disparity based on race? Yeah, for sure. So in a 2019 study in the Journal of the American Heart Association, they broke down the likelihoods of children of different races getting CPR from a bystander before getting to the hospital. So for comparison, they found that white kids had a 60% chance about of getting CPR, Latino kids only had a 45% chance, and black kids had a 40% chance only. And these are just shocking statistics that really speak for themselves, and they really demonstrate that racial disparity. So I understand that these disparities are existing in terms of who's receiving the bystander CPR, but why is this a problem? Does it really matter if bystanders are administering CPR, even if medical authorities or trained personnel are coming to administer more professional life-saving care anyways? So bystander CPR really helps to preserve the person's brain and other organs while help is on the way, which can definitely take a while. So these racial differences in CPR could be an underlying factor in the disparity in the outcomes of cardiac arrest. For example, a 2018 study in the Resuscitation Journal found that white people tended to have better neurological recovery after cardiac arrest, which could be associated with having oxygen continually supplied to their brain via CPR. Got it. Thank you for explaining that. So I have another question. Are these results or patterns dependent on geographic location? Do rates of receiving CPR based on your race also depend on what state or city you're in? Studies on CPR disparities tend to look more at neighborhoods than cities or states, but they've found that the neighborhood you live in absolutely influences your chance of getting bystander CPR. And once again, these really correspond to race, among other factors like education and income levels. So the same study that I mentioned earlier found that kids in predominantly black neighborhoods are more than 15% less likely to receive bystander CPR than kids in white neighborhoods. A 2014 study by Moon et al. looked at Arizona specifically and found that people in Hispanic neighborhoods are also 15% less likely to receive bystander CPR. So where you live definitely changes your chances of getting it. 
As someone who was raised and lived most of his life in Arizona, I find that very concerning. And I, of course, definitely believe that all people should have the same rates of bystander CPR if that is what uh, is called for in the situation. Uh, so now I'd like to ask you the same thing that I asked Melody. This is a serious issue that's clearly, literally impacting the lives of many people. So what can we do to address it? That's a great question. Studies have found that people with CPR training are much more likely to be educated and higher income. So the long-term solution would be to solve the root problems causing socioeconomic and racial disparities in America. But the shorter-term solution would be making CPR training more accessible to people in predominantly Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. CPR training tends to be around $50, which can obviously drive people away, so I think that providing cheaper training that's easily accessible would really have a great impact on the specific instance of disparity. And just as an offshoot, you mentioned that sometimes costs or accessibility can be an issue for getting CPR training. Do you have any resources or know of any uh, organizations that can help train people on how to administer CPR? For UCLA students, a great resource for accessible CPR classes is the CPR and First Aid program with the Student Wellness Commission. Otherwise, you can get some training with CPR online or in person with the American Red Cross or the American Heart Association. That's great to hear. Thank you for sharing those resources with us and for sharing your thoughts about CPR and race in America. Sophia, thank you so much. So now I'd like to turn back to Melody for the final segment of this episode, in which we'll be talking about kind of end of life planning and the final stage of somebody's life course trajectory, which is old age and sadly death. So Melody, as Americans near the end of their lives in today's day and age, do black Americans or certain ethnic groups in America face issues that their counterparts of other races do not? So there are different options that someone has when it comes to their end-of-life care. Some people often choose a palliative care route, which can be very expensive, and palliative care is just a fancy term for um, getting going into a home or having a nurse come in and, and take care of you during the end-of-life period. Now there is a lot of debate that's currently circulating around legalizing euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Controversy really surrounds this topic partly because of the nuances between these two practices. So in physician-assisted suicide, the patient commits the life-ending act, whereas in euthanasia, the physician acts last. But in both cases, the decision lies fully with the patient, who retains the right to change their mind until the point at which the lethal process becomes irreversible. So pretty much in physician-assisted suicide, a physician prescribes them a life ending. Usually it's a pill or something that they can take in their own home, and then that's how the end-of-life act is conducted. But in euthanasia, the physician will directly administer the pill or an IV or something to end the life of the patient. But the patient has to be able to be in a state of mind where they can actively say that this is what they want. So what does this have to do with race? So VAE and PAS are both ultimately cheaper than current of palliative care options that we discussed in the beginning. And so the expensive nature of the U.S. healthcare system often causes those with terminal diseases to sink into debt, especially people of color. This demographic is already more likely to not only be diagnosed with these diseases, but are also ultimately likely to face massive debt and hardship due to the broken American healthcare system. So PAS and VAE have become options that many people of color feel pressured to request to forgo putting family and friends through a lot of debt, even if that's not truly what they want. 
The basis of legalizing voluntary suicide for both VAE and PAS is that the patient is actively choosing this route to preserve their quality of life for as long as possible. The pressure that may come with having VAE or PAS as an option would take away from the voluntary basis of their legalization. So that sounds really complicated, but it's pretty much just saying that the whole idea of legalizing physician-assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia is that you get an active role in choosing how you want to end your life, especially if you have a terminating illness or something that's going to cause you to lose your autonomy later in life. So something like brain cancer, having a pressure that this is now maybe the cheapest option and you want to protect your friends and family takes away from the voluntary nature of this legalization. And so it doesn't technically become as voluntary. And so that's kind of what's going on. And that's why it can be dangerous to legalize these things for people of color. So one of the factors that you've kind of alluded to just now, and that I think you also mentioned in your article, uh, which is available on our website, is kind of the trust relationship and dynamic between patients um, that are considering VAE or PAS and their healthcare providers. And so uh, one of the considerations is that these practices, if we legalize them or use them, could affect the trust of black people or minorities in the healthcare system. Have there been similar issues in the past in terms of healthcare that have affected this trust? You're totally right. Legalizing VAE and PAS gives doctors a lot of power, and in the wrong hands, this power could be used to hurt people of color. And so Black Americans have already felt this firsthand. They have received so much harsh treatment from the healthcare system, and this is really evident in cases like the Tuskegee case and the Henrietta Lacks case, um, where they were very clearly mistreated by the medical community. So if you haven't heard of these cases before, the Tuskegee case was a study that initially involved 600 black men, 399 with syphilis, and 201 without the disease. They didn't collect informed consent. They kind of just told them, hey, you're going to be treated for syphilis, anemia, and fatigue, and here we're going to offer you some free medical exams, some free meals, and some burial assistance. And so this study started in 1932, and now when we do research studies, as soon as we find something that works when treating a disease, we have to administer that right away and stop like studying the negative effects because then we're just harming patients. So in 1943, they actually found that penicillin was a great treatment for syphilis, and it became widely available for people that were suffering from syphilis, but it was not available to the people in the study. And so they continued this until for, for many years and continued to harm them. In the Henrietta Lacks case, they also did not get consent. She was diagnosed with a type of ovarian cancer and she went to go get treatment. They took her cells. They found that these cells replicated. They named them HeLa cells but never paid her family or got her consent or got her family's consent to continue to use her cells. And these cells are actually still used in labs all across the country and many people still don't even know who Henrietta Lacks is. And so legalizing VAE could worsen distress and lead to situations where physicians misuse their power and rob individuals, especially those of low socioeconomic status, of autonomy. Unfortunately, legalizing assisted suicide may only benefit the top 0.2%, the well-off and the well-educated people, because they have the most autonomy and say and advocacy when it comes to the healthcare system. Yes, absolutely. I think it's critical to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past uh, in terms of these situations, so I totally agree with you. For my last question, I'd like to keep things consistent and stick to tradition by asking you, 
what are your recommendations for solving racial disparity and end-of-life planning? And I know that's a weighty question, but any thoughts or input you have on the matter would be appreciated. Again, I'm definitely not a healthcare professional, but like I said before, um, extensive changes definitely need to be made to the healthcare system, especially when it comes to decreasing the cost of treatment, funding research for cures and new treatments for terminal diseases, and making palliative care more affordable. If we had other treatments and other options, VAE and PAS wouldn't be just the cheapest option. Most Americans who currently request PAS are well-educated white seniors who have the privilege of choosing to die with dignity. However, until this privilege can come without fear of becoming a financial burden to loved ones or without the added distress towards the healthcare community, I don't think this is something that should necessarily be legalized in the country. So, yes, more efforts definitely need to be focused focused on alternative care options. Thank you for sharing those thoughts with us, Melody. Hopefully we can implement these changes to make concrete improvements to healthcare and end-of-life outcomes. We have now followed the life course trajectory, starting with differences in maternal morbidity and pregnancy and childbirth, going through midlife and CPR disparities based on race, all the way to potential end-of-life options in the form of VAE and PAS, and how widespread legalization of these practices could negatively affect people of color and those with less financial options. I want to give a huge thank you to both of you, Melody and Sophia, for taking up the time to speak with us today. I've had a blast doing this, and I greatly appreciate all of your thoughts and insights on the matters that we've discussed. Thank you so much for letting us talk about these really important issues and for giving these issues a platform. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to read either of Melody's articles, you can find them proudly displayed on our website, www.mso.ucla.org. And you can also check out the other sources used in today's episode in the description box or on our website. Thank you for doing your part to help improve health literacy around the world by tuning into our podcast. This is Dhruv Kosla signing out of Morning Sign In.